Hey Logo Geeks, Ian Padgett here and we are back with a full season of the Logo Geek podcast with loads of exciting guests lined up. To kick off the season, I've invited Gordon Firemark, a practicing attorney, to discuss the legal side of logo design, including copyright, trademarking and contracts. But before we jump into the interview, I want to thank FreshBooks, who have once again sponsored this podcast. FreshBooks is an invoicing and accounting software designed specifically for small business owners. It's simple, intuitive and keeps you way more organized than using Excel spreadsheets and keeping a box of crumpled receipts in your drawer. You can create and send professional looking invoices in under 30 seconds and then you can get them paid quickly and easily with automated online payments. You can try it free for 30 days just by heading over to freshbooks.com forward slash logo geek and enter logo geek in the how did you hear section to get started so as mentioned this week we have a practicing attorney as a guest basically for quite some time i wanted to do an episode that dives into the legal side of logo design you know to talk about topics such as copyright trademarking how to use symbols on your logo how to create contracts and so on i've had so many questions around this as did people in the logo geek community so i was really excited when i came across a youtube video by a guy called gordon firemark which discussed trademark protection for logo design so basically i reached out to him and he kindly agreed to be a guest which is really exciting because he absolutely knows his stuff this is a really value-packed interview, so you might want to reference the show notes, which includes a full transcription of the interview that you can read through, as well as links to any of the resources that we mentioned throughout. To find out, just head over to logogeek.uk forward slash 4.1. So let's jump straight into this. Here is the interview with Gordon Firemark. So I am uh, a practicing attorney here in Los Angeles, California. I do entertainment, media, and business law. And within that is sort of the field of intellectual property, uh, copyrights and trademarks specifically. I don't do patent stuff myself. Um, so, you know, in, in these industries, copyrights and trademarks are sort of the the main <laughs> articles in trade. And so uh, we entertainment lawyers know a great deal about this. Uh, in my business, I register trademarks for clients across all, all industries, but largely in the entertainment and media artistic spaces. And um, I've been doing this for about 27 years, since 1992. Before that, I was in the television production business, and before that, the theater business. And um, yeah, I love what I do. I love what I do. In fact, um, uh, I like to teach and I like to help people learn how to do it themselves as well. Well, brilliant stuff. So. As I mentioned, I run a Facebook community for the logo designers. And recently I mentioned to the group that um, I was going to be interviewing you. So I asked if anyone had any questions and I was really amazed by the response. Like there were so many questions from members. So I know that this will be a really popular episode. So to, to start the discussion, the, the first question I, I have for you is like from the standpoint of protecting your work what is the difference between copyright and a registered trademark so a copyright is a protection for the design the artwork the 
the expressive, creative originality that goes into creating something like that. And it protects against copying of that design of that, you know, uh, the logo um, and being, and it being used and incorporated into other kinds of works um, and so on. Trademark protection is, it's a different flavor. Now, when we deal with logos, of course, it is a distinctive symbol or mark of some sort that's being used as a brand identifier. And so what the protection uh, gives us is the right of the owner of that mark, the user of, the, of that mark branding, to have exclusive right to use it in connection with those kinds of goods or services as a brand or source identifier. So uh, copyright law wouldn't stop somebody else from using something similar to identify their own goods or services that are competitive in the marketplace. Trademark law goes as far as uh, anything that is confusingly similar. So, and there are some kinds of uh, logos that wouldn't be protected by copyright. For example, a red triangle on a corner of a box here in the, in the U.S. We have a brand called Nabisco that probably sells worldwide now. <laughs> um, that is um, that red triangle design is probably not protectable by copyright. It's a red triangle. There are other components to it that might be, but anyway. Uh, another issue that comes up that's recently becoming an issue is here in the U.S. The copyright term uh, is um, uh, coming to an end for a number of works. One of the most notable ones is Mickey Mouse. The original design of, of Mickey Mouse's character protected by copyright from the movie Steamboat Willie is uh, going to fall into the public domain in 2024. But Disney uses it in, you know, and has obviously a great deal of investment in the Mickey Mouse character. So they have begun using it as their trademark as well. Trademark protection doesn't expire as long as the owner continues using the mark as an identifier in commerce of, of the source of goods or services. So to expand on that, as a graphic designer, since there's so many registered marks already in the world, how do you avoid breaching any trademarks? Like, are there any tools out there beyond just like performing a, a Google search? Well, there are... There are search firms out there that can do, you know, visual search and Google can do a search of images as well. So you can do a, a matchup search kind of a thing. I think most of the time uh, trademarks are prominent enough in the, in the world, especially logo designs. Well, maybe I'm wrong about that, but uh, you know, if they're really distinctive, you're likely to know about them or they're likely to show up in a, in a fairly basic search. There are much more comprehensive searches available for a fee from uh, various vendors and we do recommend before someone goes and registers a trademark that they confirm that it's available um i'm not sure at the design phase uh well i mean i guess if someone's investing a great deal of, of money and resources into designing a new logo for their business they want to make yeah. sure they're not gonna have to do it all over again in six weeks because they found something infringing yeah uh yeah so these searches are are uh, worth doing in that in instance. But again, you've already done a lot of the design work before you can run the search. Now in the U S the, the U S trademark office does have a database that has uh, sort of design uh, design code indicators where you can say, well, you know, the example that I see often is a, uh, a key with a heart shaped um, uh, handle, you know, so you can search for heart shaped key and find all the different ones <laughs> that are registered in the database there. Um, that doesn't mean it's necessarily free and clear because there could be others that are using similar designs that aren't registered as trademarks. 
but it's a good start. So going in and, and learning how to really search the U.S. Uh, trademark Office's website and database is probably a good start also. Um, there are, like I said, these search firms can do it for you. Fees tend to be in the hundreds of dollars per search. And uh, so, you, you know, doing a preliminary knockout search is probably a good idea for yourself. Sure. So basically it would just be a case of doing a, an image search on Google and also checking the, the database you mentioned. Yeah. Is that database something that's freely available to everyone? Yes, the USPTO, uh, that's the Patent and Trademark Office. Brilliant. So what I would do for listeners is link to that in the show notes for this episode, which can be found at, I think, logogeek.uk forward slash 4.1. Yeah. Yeah. So when you do that, just for note, for your reference, USPTO.gov, and there's a, the service is called uh, TESS, T-E-S-S, trademark uh, search. Yeah. Fantastic. So once you do have the design complete, what's the process for registering that logo? Well, before we go there, I think I should uh, talk a little bit, and, and let me let me toss you the question to ask me, uh, or maybe it, it, it's about whether a designer is the person who should register. Sure, that's a good point. <laughs> so it's important that we note that a designer can own a copyright in a design he or she creates because the, they're doing the original work to create it. But unless that designer is using that mark to identify his or her own services or goods, they're not the owner of the trademark the client for whom they're creating that work is the owner of the trademark. And so that's who would be registering the, the trademark or service mark in this instance. So, um, so yeah, designers need to be mindful about that and retain ownership of their copyright in the image, at least until they've been paid in full uh, for, the, for the design work. I think while we're on that topic, it'd be worth discussing the the best approach for transferring copyright of, of a design to the client. Like what I do at the moment in my contract, it states that copyright is transferred uh, once payment has been made. And uh, I also send a, what I call a copyright transfer document. And that's just something that I put together based on things I, I found online. And it just briefly explains that basically the uh, copyright of the the final Lego has been transferred. I sign it, the client signs it. Does something like that suffice in that situation? Um, the the specific language of a transfer of ownership is usually in the context of what we the document we call an assignment of copyright. And uh, it's relatively simple. It's about a three quarters of a page of typed text when we lawyers do it. Uh, the fact of it is, in your engagement contract or whatever you do, yet you, uh, it could be as little as two or three sentences. Brilliant. Thanks for confirming. So to go back to the original question, in, in terms of registering the, the trademark, what is the process for that? So here in the U.S., registering a trademark is uh, a relatively straightforward procedure. You, you log into the USPTO's website. You can do it on paper, but most of us log into a website and we begin entering the identifying information about the owner and the mark itself and, um, uh, and uh, pay a fee. You know, we, we have to provide specimens to establish that we are, in fact, using it in commerce because that's the, that's the way the rights uh, attach. And um, so once we've done that, we've established the proof. Then what happens is you submit this with your filing fees and the government takes its time <laughs> to process the, uh, <laughs> the application. Now they, they, you know, look, they're backlogged. It's a, it's a, it's a busy office. And, um, eventually an examining attorney gets assigned to the case who will look at the application, determine whether the, uh, 
the mark qualifies. That is, is it distinctive? Are there any, you know, uh, confusingly similar marks already out there in use? They do their own search to, to verify that. Um, and, uh, assuming that they find it registrable, then they, they, uh, they will notify you and certify it for publication. The publication is essentially a, uh, an opportunity for the general public to comment or oppose the registration because they may feel that the mark is too similar to their own or that it infringes on their brand or something like that. Now, if the trademark examiner has found that it isn't yet qualified for registration, they will notify the applicant, usually through the attorney, uh, with what's called an office action. And that is a legal proceeding, essentially, where they're inviting you to respond to their objections to the registration. And you can make your legal arguments. You can modify the application in some respects to uh, accommodate a concern, changing the wording of the description of the goods and services that the mark is attached to, those kinds of things. And um, eventually you, you either get a final uh, rejection or a final approval and, and publication. Once the publication happens, there's this window of time, as I mentioned, for public comment. And um, that's 30 days. And after that, then it gets scheduled to be published in what's called the Trademark Gazette, the Gazette of the Trademark Office. And that is, um, uh, once it's published, uh, I'm sorry, it's published in the Gazette for comment. And then once it is registered, it is placed in there permanently. So uh, you'll receive a certificate and off you go. And at that point, you may start using the R in a circle design uh, or, or indicator to show that it's a registered trademark. Brilliant. Really great answer. So moving on from that, once you, do, uh, once you do have your logo trademarked, what happens if you do find that the logo has been copied in some way or if you find something similar? What, what can you do about that situation when, once the logo has been trademarked? Right. So whether you've registered the trademark or not, when you encounter a, a situation of infringement, it's important, I think, at that point to consult with a lawyer. You can reach out to the other party with a, with a notification, hey, we have a registered, if you have a registered trademark, you say so, or that we've been using this brand for our business in, you know, in commerce for this, in this way for these many years. And oftentimes you can work out a solution, especially if you're notified of, if you become aware of it early enough in the other mark's life. Um, the longer you wait, the worse it gets because they're now more and more invested and therefore entrenched in their branding. So. Um, yeah, I think it, it's important to, uh, uh, to consult a lawyer, uh, if that doesn't work and again, be quick about it so that we can send that, um, cease and desist notice, a, a letter basically demanding that they stop and explaining the consequences if they don't, uh, and, you know, sort of laying out the legal arguments. And if that doesn't work, then we have decisions to make about whether to proceed with litigation or, Sometimes if, if it's another, if you're on the other side and you've discovered someone's applying for something similar to yours, you can uh, file an opposition or a proceeding to cancel if, it reg if it's recently registered. But that's, that's real legal wrangling and there's some heavy lifting involved. So you want to have a lawyer helping. For copyright in comparison, just, just to paint a picture, it's very common for designers to share their work in a portfolio or on social media platforms such as Instagram, Behance and so on. A situation that comes up quite frequently is that work is often copied or stolen by someone who might claim it as their own work. What, what can be done in that situation if the um, logos haven't been trademarked? Well, 
in this instance, we're talking about a copyright infringement, not a trademark infringement, because that person isn't isn't holding it out as their brand for their business. They're merely showing someone else's work and, and they're claiming it as their own, which has trademark implications. But uh, the good news is that I think that uh, it's copyright infringement and you can do the normal copyright infringement remedies, which is a, you could do that cease and desist letter, tell them to stop it and demand that they do so. But also here in the U S we have the digital millennium copyright act, the DMCA. And that's that takedown procedure that you probably seen with YouTube videos and <laughs> music sites and things like that. Yes. It works <laughs> for images as well. So if somebody is, is, has posted a portfolio of their work and, and your work is in it, you can have that image taken down just by notifying the uh, operators of the site, the, the, the ISP or the uh, host of the website and um, filing that DMCA takedown notice. There's a special form you have to do, but it's easy enough to look up online and find out. And uh, they're supposed to take it down very quickly. If that doesn't happen, then you can file a lawsuit. But most of the time it doesn't go that far. That's good to know. Like, as a related topic, um, online I've seen stories of big brands basically stealing designers' artwork and using it on things like clothing. I believe Zara was one example. What can graphic designers do in these instances? Well, I, I mean, I do think the, the legal option is the strongest option. It Certainly, you can reach out to a brand early on and say, you know, again, it's best to do this before they're deeply invested in whatever they're doing so that they can stop what they're doing. Or, you know, you're reaching out to them for some kind of a settlement or a licensing. You can offer to license it to them uh, for a fee. And uh, there's no reason that you need a lawyer to do that unless it devolves into some kind of a fight. Most of the time, uh, I think people use lawyers because they're trying to head that off and avoid the potential for that fight by handling it in a disciplined way. They, there is a little bit of a risk when you threaten a uh, uh, anybody uh, that they can turn around and sue you first for what we call declaratory judgment. And so um, being careful on how you frame things is important, and that's why people use lawyers. But no, you, if, you, if you have a way of contacting the, the designer or the company, excuse me, the, the company that's taken the design, um, it, it doesn't hurt to do so sort of informally and ask for what you think is fair. I just want to take a short break to tell you more about the sponsor of this podcast, FreshBooks. If you're a graphic designer like me and you run your own business, you'll most likely be insanely busy. So why not make things a little bit easier for yourself? Well, FreshBooks has the solution. Their invoicing and accounting software is designed specifically for small business owners. And since it's simple and intuitive, it keeps you organized. For example, you can create professional branded invoices in 30 seconds, and then you can get them paid quickly too with automated online payments. You can also file expenses quickly and keep them nicely organized for tax time. 24 million people have used FreshBooks, so why not join them? You can try it for free for 30 days with no catch and no credit card required. To claim that, just head over to freshbooks.com forward slash logogeek and enter logogeek in the how did you hear about us section to get started. Now let's get back to the interview. So with logo design and uh, trademarking, how different does a logo need to be 
um, to be seen as different. Like as an example, I know like Adidas tend to go after any company that uses anything slightly resembling three stripes. And in some cases uh, I've seen, I don't think they, they look remotely similar. So I'm, I'm keen to know from you, how different should a, a logo be to avoid infringing on a, a registered trademark? Well, so we have two different legal standards to consider. The, under copyright, the the standard is substantial similarity. And, you know, good luck figuring out exactly what substantial means, but, you know, uh, you know, if if the if a viewer is going to look at this thing and say, "Oh yeah, that's just like the Adidas logo," then that's going to be enough to say substantially similar. And that's pretty similar to what we encounter in the trademark space where we're talking about confusing similarity, confusingly similar. If there's a likelihood that a member of the public is going to be confused as to which company is behind this product or service because of the logo that's applied to it, then that's cop that's trademark infringement. So, um, uh, confusingly similar. So, and, and one of the ways that we deal with this in, in the courts is by getting survey evidence. So if you, if it seems like there's a confusing similarity, one thing you might want to do is go out and ask a few dozen people or a hundred people, you know, do you recognize where this comes from? If it's a red can of soda with a white stripe on it, you know, people might have a pretty clear idea where it's coming from. Okay. That that's really interesting. Um, just a statement like confusingly similar explains why um, Adidas would like jump on a competitor who might use stripes in their logo in some way. But there's more to it than just stripes. You know, if it's vertical stripes or, or if they're different, each of them is a different color, you know, now we're talking about something different. And so it's not necessarily confusingly similar. And it's certainly not infringing of copyright because lines, even diagonal lines, are not original entitled to copyright protection but they might be entitled to the trademark. Okay, so I'm just thinking in, in some of those situations, as these companies have the, the financial backing, is it possible that they are going after anything remotely similar just so that they can kind of get rid of or annoy the competition? Like, Does money influence what happens? Well, I think it gives someone or a company the power to be a bully, right? If you can afford a lawyer and they can't, um, that letter from the lawyer is very frightening for the one who can't afford representation. So we end up with, you know, stop it or else we're going to keep these letters and nasty grams coming your way and you're going to be paying less. That's pretty much the way I thought it would be, uh, as there's some examples I've seen online and uh, the logos just don't look anything like each other. And, um, you know, as a consumer, you, you can't mistake them at all. So it's clearly bullying. Yeah. And sometimes the brands do, um, uh, miscalculate and they encounter someone who maybe does have resources or just stands up on principle and says, I'm going to fight this anyway because it's wrong. And uh, every once in a while it works against the brand. Good. I'm glad to hear that. Now, earlier in the conversation, we briefly spoke about um, how logos can use certain symbols such as like the, the uh, TM trademark symbol or registered R symbol. Could you talk through when each of these symbols should be used? Okay. So the R inside the circle is the symbol for a registered trademark. Only a trademark that's registered uh, under the U.S. trademark law uh, is allowed to affix that R to it. And it applies for both goods, trademarks, and services 
trademarks, which are called service marks. When the work isn't yet registered, um, whether it's in the process or not, if a, an owner wants to claim that they have rights because they've been using it in commerce, and there is a common law uh, kind of trademark as well, uh, they can affix the TM or the SM, depending on whether it's goods or services. TM for trademark, SM for services mark. Same thing, you know, just a little uh, sort of superscript next to the uh, next to the brand, whether it's a word mark or a logo mark, um, sort of puts the world on notice that hey, we're claiming a kind of ownership here. And I would say, you know, it's worthwhile doing as soon as you have a brand that is, you know, reasonably distinctive. You know, um, there are, and that's that's really the threshold for for protection is the, the mark has to be distinctive. So if you have uh, you know, fruit flavored chewing gum, that's not a trademark, but when you call it juicy fruit, <laughs> one word, it's, yeah, it's become a trademark. Okay. And in terms of using those symbols, are there any specific rules for how they should be used? Uh, because I've never seen them used in a, a set position or a set size, like the knee mastercard logo, for example, it includes the, the R symbol, but it's so tiny, it's barely legible and it basically just look like a dot. So I was just wondering, are there any rules on that? I'm not aware that there are any specifications to how that mark should be applied. And I don't think it's even a legal requirement that it be applied for a registered mark. So it's, I think it's discretionary and um, I think it's a good idea because it does put the world on notice. Um, I haven't read the statute, so I can't say first, uh, you know, I haven't looked for the statute uh, on that particular provision, but I imagine that there's little to be said about it beyond this is what the mark looks like, what the symbol should look like. Sure, it's useful to know your thoughts. Another area I like to discuss with you is contracts. Like When I first started out, I just found an example online and edited it um, accordingly just uh, to something that I felt would work. Should should a, should a, a designer work with a lawyer like someone like yourself to create um, a contract, or, or are these templates that are freely available online sufficient? You know, I think there comes a point in everybody's business where they should go beyond the form they find online or the template document and have something that's custom tailored to their own needs. And the good news is, you know, in in the graphic design business, this is a maturing industry and the standards and practices are fairly well established now. So it's certainly not a giant legal expense to have a lawyer draw up a contract for your business. But when you're just starting out, you you know, you, there's some of this is stuff you can do yourself. Um, you know, a contract is really another word for agreement, uh, or it's a manifestation of an agreement, I guess you could say. And so what's important is that you have a document of some sort that really serves as evidence of a meeting of the minds between the parties in contract law. We talk about mutual assent <laughs> and that is that there was someone made an offer and somebody accepted that offer and that all of the necessary material, important terms have been laid out. So that's the, who, the, what, the, where, the, how, the, why, and the, when, right. Um, and as long as those things are in a contract, it, it should do the job. Sure. So as a starting point, what would you recommend designers use as a, as a contract? Would would they just take one of the templates that are available online? Yeah, template documents are great. Uh, they shouldn't be viewed as, as uh, all-powerful and all-encompassing. You do sometimes need to get in there and tinker with it and, and make sure that it covers things the way you want that it covered. You know, for example, uh, what we talked about uh, elsewhere in the show 
the the issue of who owns the intellectual property and when. If you're creating a design for somebody on spec, you don't want them to own it just because you created it. So you don't want to have a, a you know a, a contract that provides for everything you do being a work made for hire, unless you're you know sort of a full time employee of the of the of the client. Uh, you much rather own retain ownership of copyright and transfer it upon receipt of final payment or something along those lines. So not every contract template you find out there is going to do the do that just right. You have to think it through and maybe get some help preparing it. But you know, contract doesn't need to be a, a scary formal document either. We can in, infer that a contract exists based on a series of emails back and forth. Hey, I'll do this, you know, this work for you for this price and so on. What's troublesome about that is that it may not be as comprehensive and complete as doing a formal document. And let's face it, one of the values of having a contract is the formality of having a piece of paper that people have signed, or even if it's done digitally nowadays, you know, there, we, we know there's a seriousness to the transaction because there's a contract and that's valuable. That's a really good point. And whilst we're on the topic of contracts, is there anything special that uh, a, a, a designer should do if they're subcontracting work out to ensure that they're um, legally covered from a copyright point of view? You know, there's a couple of issues that come up when you're dealing with either subcontractors or vendors that are helping you provide some of the components. You know, it might even be that you use a, a piece of clip art or a, or a bit of, um, I don't know, uh, material that comes from third third parties. You need to make sure that in the, at the end of the day, you own all of what you're delivering to your client so that you're not in breach of your contract with your, with your customer. So it's important when you use, say, um, if, if the person isn't your employee, you're running, you know, sort of a virtual agency and you've got a designer that you refer out certain kinds of work to, you want to make sure you have a contract with that person that specifies your ownership of the material, upon, I guess on, you know, payment or whatever, uh, or how that will transfer and, and become uh, a part of the work that you deliver to your customer. So that's where it starts to get a little tricky and you may want to think about having a, uh, a custom tailored agreement, at least the first time. But, it, you know, it's a great way to leverage your business by having other people doing some of the, the work. And uh, I think it's important. So you want to make sure that the, um, actually the, the way to do it is to use a contract that provides that the subcontractor will be doing their work as a work made for hire for you which sort of looks like an employment relationship. And that means you own the copyright in it, so you can transfer it to whomever you need to. Well, that, that that's really useful to know. Well, Gordon, you've answered my question so well. Um, so we'll wrap up the interview now. But before we end, um, how can people get in touch or learn more from you? So my law practice website is at firemark.com. I'm located in Los Angeles, California. You can always look me up in the phone book if that's your, your style. Uh, uh, email me at gfiremark, that's F-I-R-E-M-A-R-K, at firemark.com. You can find that podcast at entertainmentlawupdate.com. And uh, on most social media, gfiremark is the handle, so you'll be able to find me there. Um, I also have a product available for online entrepreneurs, uh, creators of content, course creators, coaches, all those kinds of folks. Um, anybody who basically runs an online business, I've developed a, uh, a toolkit of contracts and forms and templates and instruction on how to use them called the Digital Entrepreneurs Business and Legal Toolkit. And it's available at dolegalyourself.com. So if you're interested in 
bootstrapping things, handling it yourself because you don't want to spend thousands of dollars on lawyers, that's a great option for you. DoLegalYourself.com. That's brilliant. I'll make sure to link to that and your website in the show notes for this episode so that listeners can uh, check it all out. Fantastic. So Gordon, thank you so much for your time. It's been a real pleasure talking with you. You've answered these questions so well and and provided a lot of much needed uh, clarity around these um, topics. So I'd imagine that listeners will get a lot out of this episode. Just Gordon, thank you so much. Well, thank you, Ian, for having me. It's been a lot of fun. And uh, as you might be able to tell, I love the sound of my own voice and talking about this stuff. So I'm here again. If anybody has other questions, uh, happy to help out. Wow, how great was that? So many takeaways, Gordon. Thank you so much for your time. Links to Gordon's website and any other resources mentioned can be found in the show notes for this episode, along with a full transcription of the interview. To find out, just head over to logogeek.uk forward slash 4.1. If you'd like to talk about this episode with me and over 6,000 other logo designers from around the world, why not join the Logo Geek community on Facebook? It's totally free and you can find out just by heading over to logogeek.uk forward slash community. And if you've enjoyed this episode and want to be the first to listen to future episodes, make sure to subscribe. And if you can, write a review too, which would be greatly appreciated. Now, thanks so much for listening and I will see you again next week for another exciting episode of the Logo Geek podcast.